Hi, I'm Menachem Moltner. I'm the Daniel Rubinstein Professor of Comparative Civil Law and Jurisprudence at the Tel Aviv University Faculty of Law. In the past four decades, voluminous literature on multiculturalism has been written in the disciplines of the social sciences, the humanities, and the law. Liberal political theory is no exception. Over the last 20 years, liberal thinkers have invested a great deal of effort in adapting liberal political theory to the multicultural condition. Canadian scholar Jacob T. Levi calls this the multicultural turn in liberal theory, which may be seen as part of the cultural turn that took place in recent decades in the social sciences, the humanities, and the law. The central question that occupied these thinkers, undoubtedly one of the most difficult intellectual questions of our time, was how a liberal state ought to treat cultural practices of non-liberal groups living within it. Liberal thinkers addressing this question can be divided into two major groups. The first group is that of autonomy liberals. Thinkers of this group view autonomy as the prime liberal value and as a supreme human good. They insist that it is incumbent on the liberal state to make sure that autonomy is made part of the lives of all citizens living in the state. They therefore call for activism on the part of the state in its relation in its relations with non-liberal groups. However, autonomy liberals admit that prudential considerations can make the state abstain from imposing the value of autonomy on non-liberal cultural groups. The second group of liberal thinkers that have addressed the multicultural condition is that of diversity liberals. Thinkers of this group hold that the central liberal value is not autonomy, but diversity. It is the function of the liberal state to serve as framework for, for the peaceful coexistence of people having diverse conceptions of the good life. These thinkers, therefore, call for restraint on the part of the state in its relations with non-liberal groups. Autonomy liberalism is often presented by these thinkers as offspring of the Enlightenment, and diversity liberalism as offspring of the Reformation. Each of these two approaches is problematic. As to autonomy liberals, it cannot be denied that autonomy deserves to be viewed as a highly important human value. But as a policy for conducting the relations between a liberal state and non-liberal groups living in it, autonomy is a complete non-starter. Liberalism is one particular theory about the good life. To approach non-liberal cultural groups from liberal premises, such as autonomy, is to evaluate the cultures of these groups by the standards of another particular culture. Moreover, the culture of mainstream liberal society is afflicted with many ailments, such as poverty, violence, degradation of women to sexual objects, 
excessive individualism and neglect of moral education. The implications of this phenomenon are twofold. First, people living in non-liberal groups would find it unacceptable that their cultures be evaluated according to standards that stands at the basis of a way of life they deem so packable. Second, if indeed mainstream liberal society is deficient to such an extent, there's the risk that in upholding liberal values, liberal thinkers would miss the blind spots of their own society. In order to avoid this risk, liberal thinkers need to reach beyond their own accepted standards and look for normative standards capable of checking the way of life of their own society as well. Diversity liberalism is problematic as well. On the one hand, it is more fitting for the multicultural condition in that it acknowledges and endorses the multicultural condition and in that it is not premised on evaluating non-liberal cultures by liberal standards. However, diversity liberalism fails to offer coherent and rigorous guidance as to the circumstances in which intervention by, by the liberal state in non-liberal cultural practices would be justified. Thus, diversity liberalism gives too much weight to considerations having to do with the cultures of non-liberal groups, to the neglect of basic human values, and to the neglect of basic interests of members of groups. I wish to go beyond these two approaches. The approach I would set forth in this lecture is motivated by the conviction that the only standards that the liberal state can invoke in its relations with non-liberal groups are universal, universal standards. That is to say, standards that can be viewed to the utmost extent possible as transcending any particular culture, standards that can be traced to the least extent possible to any one particular culture, standards that can be applied not only to non-liberal cultures, but to the culture of the mainstream liberal society itself. I shall argue that the only body of doctrine that currently approximates these conditions is the human rights doctrine. I shall suggest, therefore, that in the coming decades, the international community will apply the doctrine of human rights and the concept of human dignity that stands at its core for evaluating cultural practices and for determining the, the acceptability of cultural practices. In what is probably the most important development in 20th century international law, in the decades following World War II, the international community developed a rich doctrine of human rights. This doctrine perceived human beings in all places and at all times, no matter what their gender, race, or social belonging, as having intrinsic moral value, merely because of their humanity, and therefore as bearers of a series of fundamental rights. In addition, partly as a result of the influence of human rights doctrine of international law, the concept of human rights has been widely discussed and applied 
in recent decades in the constitutional law jurisprudence of many countries. As a consequence, a rich doctrine of human rights and a thick concept of human dignity are now available to the international community. We may assume that the human rights doctrine and the concept of human dignity will enjoy further development in the coming decades. The human, the human rights doctrine is an offspring of four major Western intellectual movements, humanism, natural law, natural rights, and liberalism. Therefore, any effort to apply the doctrine in non-Western contexts raises problems similar to those arising whenever a liberal state seeks to apply its standards to cultural practices of non-liberal groups. One response to these problems is the suggestion that the human rights doctrine is inherently Western and that, it, and that it embodies one particular conception of the good life, individualism. In this vein, some have argued that the human rights doctrine stands in stark contrast to non-Western conceptions of the good life, conceptions based on sharing, partnership, solidarity, and giving, as well as on the value of harmony among people. It was therefore argued that any presentation of the doctrine as enjoying universal acceptance in the world community amounts to cultural imperialism. In contrast, others have claimed that the post-World War II human rights movement promotes the values of the English, American, French, Russian, and Chinese revolutions, and, it takes, and, th and that it takes its inspiration from all the great religions and philosophies of the world. Some have argued that the concept of human dignity is found in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and all the great religions of humankind, albeit not as a distinct category such as the one recognized in the West. Others have maintained that the notion of universal human rights can be traced back to the Bible and to Roman law. In contrast to an argument made by some Asian scholars that the doctrine of human rights is inconsistent with Asian values, other researchers posited that respect for human rights is an integral, is an integral part of the spiritual traditions of Asia so that India, for example, managed to develop in the past five decades a rich jurisprudence of human rights as parts of its constitutional law. It was further argued that in recent decades, the discourse of human rights took over the discourse of revolution and socialism in many parts of the world. Arguing that many people around the world do not wish to face the binary choice of either sticking to their cultural tradition or leaving their cultural group and enjoying the benefits of human rights, certain scholars have maintained that people wish to make human rights an integral part of the cultures in which they live. Therefore, these scholars have claimed 
Whereas the old rigid, con rigid <coughs> conception of human culture is uniform and coherent, hinders the possibility of employing the human rights doctrine in non-Western cultures, the new conception of culture as complex, incoherent, and hybrid allows for the application of the doctrine in many varied cultures. What comes out of all these arguments is that the human rights doctrine can be said to be universal, not only in the sense that it perceives human beings in their pre-social and pre-cultural existence. Rather, it can be said that the doctrine enjoys universality in the world in the following two additional senses that are of the utmost importance to the present argument. First, the doctrine's ideals may be found in many cultures around the world. Second, the doctrine enjoys widespread acceptance in the world community. Many people around the world, living in many varied societies and cultures, endorse the doctrine and, which, and wish its contents to become an, impo an important part in the political culture of their country and in their personal lives. No other ideal seems so clearly accepted as a universal good, writes Oscar Schachter. The doctrine of human rights is therefore the only source available for providing us with standards that may be said to transcend the one particular culture for the evaluation of cultural practices. The question of the universality of the human rights doctrine arose in the second half of the 1940s in discussions held by the American Anthropological Association, the AAA. These discussions and the continuous debate that ensued from them in the following decades are of special importance because of the sensitivity of anthropologists to cultural diversity and their profound understanding of the concept of culture. In 1947, the AAA formulated its position with regard to the proposed Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the document that laid the foundation for the development of the human rights doctrine in the post-World War II era. The AAA, strongly motivated by recognition of the evils of colonialism, came out with three propositions. The first was that the individual realizes his personality through his culture. Hence, respect for individual differences entails a respect for cultural differences. The second was that Respect for differences between cultures is validated by the scientific fact that no technique of qualitatively evaluating cultures has been discovered. The third proposition, expressing a relativist position which was in tension, if not in contrast, with the agenda of developing a universal doctrine of human rights, read that Standards and values are relative to the culture from which they derive, so that any attempt to formulate postulates 
that grow out of the beliefs or moral codes of one culture must to that extent detract from the applicability of any declaration of human rights to mankind as a whole. The important point is that in the 1990s, the AAA adopted the opposite position. In 1992, the AAA established a Committee for Human Rights. In 1995, the Executive Board of the AAA adopted detailed guidelines for action in the cause of human rights. In its guidelines, the Board pronounced unequivocally that the AAA's commitment to the promotion of human rights in the world. Indeed, in this spirit, in the past two decades, one can find many writings by anthropologists advocating the promotion of human rights in the world and discussing the means for this. Anybody familiar with the human rights doctrine knows that its contents are phrased in highly abstract terms as general and vague ideals. Indeed, it can be argued that this way of phrasing is an important reason for the cross-cultural wide acceptance of the doctrine. The question is whether a doctrine phrased in such abstract and general terms may provide any guidance for the normative evaluation of concrete cultural practices. The current abstract and general layer of the human rights doctrine is the first layer of the doctrine, yet it is continuously supplemented by an additional layer embodying the decisions of international and national tribunals in cases that come to their adjudication. This second layer contains, therefore, rulings as to the acceptability of cultural practices according to the standards of the human rights doctrine. These rulings continuously accumulate, and it is in them that the potentiality lies for the human rights doctrine to serve as standard for evaluating cultural practices. The thicker this layer becomes, the more an accumulated body of normative determination, determinations as to particular cultural practices will be available to the international community. The thicker this layer becomes, the more it will serve as a source for further development of the jurisprudence dealing with the normative ac acceptability of particular cult cultural practices. Thus, it may be assumed that five or six more decades along the road, the international community will have at its disposal a well-developed jurisprudence containing particular rulings as well as principles supporting these rulings that lie at the mid-level between the current abstract layer of the doctrine and the rulings embodying particular applications of the doctrine. This process is well known to anybody familiar with the development of Anglo-American common law as well as with the way codes jurisprudence grew in civil law countries. The approach, the approach suggested here assumes that an ongoing dialogue will take place in the international community 
for the elaboration of a jurisprudence having to do with problematic cultural practices. This dialogue will take place in several contexts. It will first take place in the various countries whose courts will be called upon to evaluate such practices and who will conduct this evaluation by applying the standards of the human rights doctrine. The dialogue will also take place between states when courts will consult the jurisprudence developed by courts located in other countries in addressing this issue. And finally, the dialogue will take place in international arenas in which the jurisprudence developed in various parts of the world will be studied, discussed, and even codified. In all these dialogues, various points of view about human values and human ways of life will be voiced, clarified, examined, and criticized. In all these dialogues, the partiality of every culture will be made clear, and sensitivity to the unique traits of other cultures will be cultivated. How superior is this strategy for dealing with problems of multiculturalism to that of applying the liberal standard of autonomy. Moreover, in one of the more important contemporary developments in liberal political theory, John Rawls came out with the idea of political liberalism. Political liberalism is meant to provide a framework for running the center of the state in circumstances in which major social groups bitterly contest each other's vision as to how the constitution of a state ought to be interpreted and as to the law of the and, and, and as to how the law of the state ought to solve fundamental normative questions. Rawls's move is based on making people internalize the idea that in conditions of such disagreement, the full realization of their comprehensive theory about the good life may only take place in sub-statist communities, while the central institutions of the state would be run according to an overlapping consensus, a freestanding, independent political theory that can be endorsed by most major religious and cultural groups living in the state. What comes out of this line of thought is that it is not necessarily comprehensive, traditional, liberal political theory that will serve as the normative framework for running the central institutions of a multicultural state, but rather an independent theory that may be endorsed and supported by liberal and by non-liberal groups alike. The proposition I'm making here takes Rawls's suggestion and applies it to the other major context in which pressing questions arise in multicultural states. Much like Rawls, what I mean to suggest is that in evaluating the practices of non-liberal groups living in a liberal state, as well as the practices of the mainstream liberal society itself, it is not comprehensive liberal theory that will provide the normative criteria, 
but rather a freestanding, independent theory that embodies an overlapping consensus, an overlapping normative consensus, supportable by liberals and by non-liberals alike, namely the doctrine of human rights. By the same token, the Rawls understands that in a multicultural state, the center of the state ought to be run by an overlapping consensus that does not necessarily embody the comprehensive, substantive vision of liberal political theory, so also in a multicultural state, the relations between the state's center and its cultural peripheries ought to be governed not by the center's comprehensive liberal theory, but by a normative consensus with which both the center and the peripheries may identify. In the world in which we live, it is only the doctrine of human rights that may be said to command such cross-cultural support. Finally, I wish to present the proposition suggested here from an additional perspective. In a classic article, Multiculturalism and the Politics of Recognition, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor presents the rise of the discourses of identity and multiculturalism as a sort of retreat to an early historical era. In the pre-modern era, writes Taylor, the fate of an individual was determined by his or her location in the social ladder of the society in which he or she lived. Therefore, it was seen as part of the natural order of things that different people had different fates in life and were treated differently by others in the course of their lives. In this historical era, therefore, the notion of difference was at the, the core of the social organization, of the self-image of people, and of the way people treated other people. Taylor calls this era the era of honor. Modernity is presented by Taylor as a new era, organized around the notion of human dignity, whose essence is that because of their humanity, all human beings are entitled to a hard core of rights that are supposed to, ass to assure them a certain equal life fate and a certain equal treatment in the course of their lives. Thus, in this era, it is the notion of equality that lies at the basis of social organization and at the core of the human psyche. The rise of the discourses of identity and multiculturalism is presented by Taylor as a kind of reintroduction of elements of inequality and difference into our thinking about society and people. The two discourses emphasize the particular, unshared dimensions in the existence and identities of human beings, and they are meant to promote differential treatment of groups and of people belonging to groups. By insisting on the importance of the elements of equality and similarity, taken from the era of modernity, the move I'm suggesting here 
seeks to balance the move that has taken place with the rise of the discourses of identity and multiculturalism. The two discourses focus on identity and cultural traits that differentiate between people and that emphasize the dissimilarity among people. The proposition I'm making here is meant to serve as a reminder that we have to think of human beings first and foremost and prior to anything else as beings whose shared humanity establishes the claim that they will enjoy human dignity and that they will be treated as bearers of certain fundamental rights that cannot be compromised. Thank you.